Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you do, then please turn to John chapter 10 as we continue today to look at the I Am statements of Jesus, these statements in which Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who took upon himself flesh, who entered into our humanity on that very first Christmas day, reaches, as we've seen, all the way back into the pages of the Old Testament, all the way back to the foot of Mount Sinai, all the way back to that conversation between Moses and God in the burning bush in which God is calling Moses to be a deliverer, a bringer of life. He's saying, look, I want you to go back to Egypt, to this place where my people are enslaved in the land of death, and I want you to deliver them from 400-plus years of slavery, from all that they, their fathers, their grandfathers, their great-grandfathers, their great-great-grandfathers, etc., have ever known. And after Moses kind of gets the impression that God's not going to relent, that he's really going to actually have to go do this, he says to the Lord, okay, fine, I'll do this. However, when I get there, they're going to want to know who this God is who claims to be able to deliver from Pharaoh, who claims to be able to deliver from oppression and justice death and so forth, what's his name? And God says, that's right, they're going to ask that, they're going to wonder those things, that's when I want you to give him my name, and it is, and this is important for us today, my memorial name to all generations, not just to that generation. It's his name to us. He says, that's when I want you to lay my name on him, and you just tell them that my name is I Am. Jesus Christ, Son of God, takes upon himself flesh, invisible made visible, intangible made tangible, incomprehensible, still incomprehensible, but coming in a form that we can understand, takes upon himself man, truly God, truly man, enters into our humanity, grabs that name out of the Old Testament, applies it to himself, thus saying, I am the eternal creator God, and then he attaches it to all these other concepts and ideas and images that are also kind of largely found in the Old Testament, every single one of which, and we've seen this, deals with life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine who gives life to the branches and brings forth in the form of fruit life through the branches. I'm the light of the world, the idea being without which there would be no life. Everyone dealing with life. Jesus is saying, look, guys, if you want to know who I am, I'm that God. Standing here in the midst of this world, intimate with things like sorrow, Suffering, questions, sin, our sin, and even death. And if you want to know what I'm all about, I'm all about life. And these concepts, these ideas, these images to which he attaches the I am name of the eternal creator God really kind of help us to flesh out, well, what does that mean? I mean, you know, what kind of a life, Jesus, is it that you come to offer? And each one of them sort of offers a different angle on what the answer to that question is. And the one that we're going to look at today is where Jesus stands before us and all of humanity, and he says, okay, I am the door. And to understand what he means by that and the kind of life that he's offering by saying that... We kind of need to run through the Bible and look at the biblical image of the door, which takes us all the way back to Noah. Do you remember Noah? Studied him in Sunday school, didn't you? Noah, according to God, was the only righteous man on the entire planet in his day, and according to the entire planet in his day, was the craziest. 
And I want you to think for a moment why Noah was the craziest guy on the planet, at least from the perspective of the planet. He was the craziest guy because, number one, he claimed to have the Word of God. Number two, he claimed that, among other things, the Word of God said that a day was coming in which God would judge all of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what's his message? His message is repent, right? Confess your sin. Stop doing it. Turn to this God. By faith, find deliverance and life from the coming flood of the wrath of God behind what? Behind a door. The door to this great big boat that he built in his backyard in the plains of Mesopotamia. And he didn't build it on a trailer. And there isn't even so much probably as a lake in that area. So the water is going to come to him. Repent and find life and deliverance behind the door while there is still time. That's the Noah, or that's the message of Noah. You know what's interesting? That's our message too. Feeling crazy yet? What is our message to the world? It is that we, by God's grace, according to the mysteries of His will, have His Word. In the Bible, right? And that for all the things the Bible says, one of the things that it says, and it does not stutter on this, is that God has established a day upon which God will judge all of the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And so what do we therefore need to do? We need to repent. We need to confess our sins. We need to run for safety from the flood of the wrath of God that will yet come upon humanity. And we need to run to the one who identifies himself today as the door. Repent and go to the door. Get behind it while there is still time. Same message, really. I mean, we're not building a boat or anything, but but understand these images. And understand also why Noah is revered. You know why he's revered? Because he so believed that message that it infected the entirety of his life. It's like he was awakened to the reality that the world that he was living in is a world destined for destruction. It is a world that is perishing. It is a world that is in some sense worthless. And that what he needs to throw himself into is the mission of the salvation of God by which people will be transported behind the door to a world that doesn't end. That's Noah. It's an interesting story. He builds a boat. You know the deal. It's 450 feet long. It's 75 feet wide. It's 45 feet tall. It has all of these levels and compartments and containers and all kinds of good stuff in it. And then he gets on it with his family because those are the only people he could convince. They all, everybody else, it's like, oh man, you know, and I don't know what he had to do to cajole his family to get on. Who knows? But anyway, he gets on there with his family. God brings to him all of the animals that God designs to save. And what happens next? Because it's not what you want to say. You want to say, okay, Tom, I know this. I learned this in Sunday school 40 years ago. The flood comes next. That's what happens next. Wrong answer. What happens next is that God himself closes the single solitary door. And then the flood comes. And everyone outside of the door is subject to what? It's a little painful. It's kind of traumatic to destruction and death. 
And everyone inside the door is subject to deliverance and life. So what's the message? Well, the message is that there's destruction and death, and there's deliverance and life. And the difference? The difference is the door. We see it again with the city of Sodom, you know, this wicked city that God purposes to destroy, but in which lives one righteous man. Well, that sounds familiar. That's kind of interesting. His name is Lot. He's the nephew of Abraham. And so God sends two angelic visitors who, you know, come clothed in humanity in some sense. In other words, they look like men. So they go into the city to do two things. One, to bear witness against its wickedness, that indeed God is righteous in judging and destroying it. And number two, to get Lot out. And Lot meets them at the gate and Lot brings them into his home. Lot shows him this great, you know, Middle Eastern hospitality. And at the darkest moment of the night, when everybody is ready to go to sleep, the men of the city of Sodom, from which we get the word sodomy, come out and surround Lot's house to sodomize forcibly these two men. And what does Lot do? He goes outside the door of his house and he begs them, he pleads with them, please don't do this thing. Please, I'm begging you. And it gets kind of violent outside the door of his house. It's not a safe place outside the door, truthfully. And to save Lot, these two angelic visitors open the door, grab Lot, pull him in, shut the door, strike the crowd with blindness. The crowd dissipates, and early the next day, what happens? Everyone behind the door of Lot's house, that's his family only, that's all he could convince, flee the city while God destroys it. Again, what's the message? Well, there's destruction and death. Sorry. There's deliverance in life. Pretty happy about that. And the difference is the door. We see it again with the people in Israel, of Israel and Egypt. Moses is sent, again, to deliver the people from Egypt, this place, this nation that God purposes to destroy by demonstrating His mastery through all of these plagues over every one of the Egyptian gods. And on the night of their deliverance, while the Egyptians are suffering destruction and death. The Israelites experienced deliverance and life behind the doors of their homes, which they have by faith painted with the blood of the Passover lamb, the innocent shed for the guilty. There is life behind the bloody door. Get the point? Destruction and death, deliverance and life, the difference being the door, lastly. We see it in the story of Rahab. Joshua leads the people of Israel across the Jordan River right above the Dead Sea, and he travels, I don't know, about five miles or so to the fortress city of Jericho. He has to conquer Jericho. It's his single greatest victory. It's the fortress city that guards entrance to the whole land that he's called to go in and to take for God's people, and into which, parenthetically, he sent two spies or witnesses, and it's a city that contains exactly one righteous person. And her name is Rahab. And here's the deal that the two witnesses made with her. Rahab, everyone outside the door of your house will be destroyed. Everyone inside will be spared. And she gathers her family behind the door of her house. And that's exactly what happens. There's destruction and death. There's deliverance in life. 
and the difference is the door. And as I'm thinking through that this week, I thought, okay, maybe here is a good point to just take a few deep breaths and deal with this emotionally for a second. I mean, when you study the stories, intellectually, it all kind of adds up. It's sort of mathematical. You can see it. And if you're just cold and sterile and intellectual, you can understand how that sort of plays out. Oh, yeah, maybe you never saw that before. But sure, yeah, hey, that makes sense, Tom. Great. But emotionally, that's a whole different ballgame. It's completely different. It is not easy to get our hearts around this, particularly as first or 21st century Americans. Why? Because the door divides. The door discriminates, and it doesn't discriminate between two equally friendly options, if you haven't noticed. Destruction and death. Deliverance and life. Big difference. It's difficult because it actually matters what side of the door you're on. It's difficult because, for example, this means that you cannot, on the one hand, affirm the truth of these teachings, and on the other hand, continue to maintain the belief that it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. No, it does, actually. It matters. And here's the other thing that it matters. The way we then live. You cannot affirm the truth of these teachings, really and truly, and then do nothing. So the door divides. That's one problem. The other part of the problem is that the door confronts us with the uncomfortable reality that what sin deserves and what sinners deserve and what you and I deserve, apart from Christ, is the wrong side of the door. It's destruction and death, isn't it? And we don't have a category for that. I mean, let's just be honest. It's like, that's beyond our imagination. It's like, huh, that doesn't make any sense to us. We talked a little bit about this last week because to our minds, we're all good people, you know? I mean, you, what you're saying, Tom, is that I deserve and my, my kids deserve and my wife and my family and all my friends and everybody. I, I mean, I mean, that's ridiculous. We are a good community of folks by our own standards. I, I sign off on that 100%. I mean, maybe some people deserve destruction and death, but we can name them. Hitler, Stalin... Jeffrey Dahmer, maybe, just maybe, Jerry Sandusky, who's been making the news quite a bit. But not me. The problem is that our standard doesn't govern and that you and I are not the judge. The standard is the perfection and holiness of God Himself. It is His unfailing righteousness. That's the standard. And he's the judge. And by that standard, we're in trouble. You know, with the universal response, it seems, of sinful people who enter into the presence of God and actually on those very, very rare occasions in the Bible see him for who he is. You know what the the response is? The response is one of abject horror. As they, for the first time, see and begin with their finite minds to comprehend the infinite holiness of God. And as they then, as a result, see for the first time just how unholy they actually are. The door confronts us with the uncomfortable reality that what sin deserves, what sinners deserve, what we apart from Christ deserve is death and destruction. But it also confronts us with the glorious reality that what we receive instead through the door who is Jesus is deliverance and life. That's ours through the one who was destroyed for our sin and our place. 
So with all that in mind, I want us to look at the statement that Jesus makes, but I want to pick it up in John chapter 10, verse 1, where Jesus says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the what? Here it is, by the door, but climbs in by another way. That man is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And this is a little bit confusing to us because we entered into this conversation focused solely on one of the many images that Jesus is giving us. We came to this conversation focused just about on the door, and Jesus is talking about a sheepfold, you know, a thief and a robber, a door, a shepherd, sheep. And it gets more confusing, really, as you go, because in a minute, Jesus is going to make the great statement, I am the door, and then four verses later, he says, I am the good shepherd. And you go, okay, so which one are you exactly? I mean, are you the shepherd? Are you the door? And the answer to that is yes. Yes. And a little lesson in animal husbandry will help. These things were understood in the first century, but not, they're not understood to us. I mean, you know, we're not shepherds. We don't deal with sheep. We don't see guys walking down Federal Highway, you know, calling their herd. We, we have no concept of, of how this whole thing plays out. See, the way that it worked in those days is that shepherds would create sheepfolds. And they would do that because at night, their sheep was subject or were subject to destruction and death. You know, to predators to thieves, to robbers, from which they were largely free under the safety of the light of day in the presence of their shepherd. Now, if they strayed, that's a different story. But if they stick with the shepherd, light of day, he has his weapons, he's cool, he's good, they're good, no problem. At night, different story entirely. So they would create these sheepfolds, and they would keep their sheep in the sheepfold at night to protect them from destruction and death. And they would create these sheepfolds out of rocks. Simple reason, rocks are everywhere there. Geographically speaking, parts of Palestine, it looks like, and I've shared this with you in the past, it looks like a great rainstorm of rocks came through and literally just poured down rocks all over the land. It's beautiful, but if you're going to clear a field, if you need to use a piece of ground, you literally have to move the rocks. So they built their homes out of rocks, they built their cities out of rocks, they built their walls for their sheepfolds out of rocks, and they would, you know, adorn them with all kinds of thorny things, you know, to stop people from crawling over the top and create as safe a space as they possibly could, and they would create in that sheepfold exactly one opening, one door, and sometimes there was actually a door there, it was like a gate, and Jesus will refer to a gatekeeper here in a second. So all of this is in play. But oftentimes there was nothing in the opening, no physical door. So the shepherd would lead his sheep out. The shepherd would bring his sheep in. And guess where the shepherd slept? In the door. If you're going to get to the sheep, you've got to go over or through him. The shepherd himself becomes the door. He becomes that which divides destruction and death from deliverance and life for his sheep. So Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, or the sheepfold by the door, rather, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. That is to say, that man comes to do harm. That man is illegitimate. That man comes to steal and to kill and destroy is the language that he'll use here in a second. How, I mean, does that happen? Well, in his day and in ours, through a false teaching... 
that says things to us all the time like, you know what, sin is no big deal, and no judgment is actually ever going to come, and the whole it really matters what side of the door you're on thing. I mean, you know. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Okay, but who are the sheep? Well, as we're going to see in a second, they are those who not only know the voice of the shepherd, but then who obediently follow it. It was not uncommon for groups of shepherds in those days to kind of collectively get together and create together one big sheepfold in which they kept all of their flocks. And sometimes they would then go out and they'd hire sort of an under-shepherd, and they're called the gatekeeper. And again, you'll hear mention of a gatekeeper here in a second. And the gatekeeper would let them out in the morning, and the gatekeeper would keep the sheepfold from, you know, anybody else's use until evening, and then the gatekeeper would let them back in in the evening. The obvious question then being, okay, let's say you have five shepherds, five flocks, all these sheep. How in the world do you separate them? I mean, you know, how do they keep them from intermingling? And the answer to that is they didn't. They intermingled every single night until the, dawn, the breaking of the dawn came. The safety of the light appeared, and the shepherds would then go out to their appointed spot, and they would call their sheep in their unique voice with their unique call. And guess what happened? The sheep of that particular shepherd would come out from amongst all of the other sheep, every one of them and they'd go out to their shepherd, and he would then lead them through the day. Which makes sense of what Jesus says next, the second part of verse 3. He says, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own by name. Who owns the sheep? The shepherd does, doesn't he? That is a thought that is paradigm shifting. Paul comes to us as those who believe in Christ. We've found safety behind the door to use today's image. The bloody door, in fact. And he says, you know what? You're not your own. You've been purchased. Therefore, change. Therefore, glorify God with your body. That means with everything. With the way that you think, with the way that you speak, with the things that you do and don't do, with what you look at, with what you listen to, all of the above. There's nothing you don't use your body to do. You are owned by the shepherd, and that pervades every area of our lives. The sheep hear his voice, you see, those who belong to him, and he calls his own by name, and he leads them out. Please notice who leads the sheep, because the sheep don't lead themselves. You know, the sheep don't come out and see the shepherd, and they're like all happy to see him, and they say, hey, listen, you know what? We're going to go this way today, and it'd be very cool if you came along just in case a predator came upon us because you'd be handy to have in that circumstance. If we have some kind of an emergency, we'd like to know you're there, but outside of that, we're planning to go this way. They follow the shepherd.
Then he says this. He says, when he has brought out all his own, he's called them, they've come out. He goes before them, and the sheep follow him. They know his voice, they follow his voice. They know the word, they live the word. For they know his voice, he says. A stranger, they will not follow. It's interesting. They've actually done experiments where they dress up other men, if you will, in the shepherd's clothes. So they look like the shepherd. They smell like the shepherd. You know, probably not great. To try to deceive the sheep. It's the voice. They run from the stranger. And that's instructive too. I wonder what we run from and what we run to. He says, for they know his voice, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. There you go. For they do not know the voice of stranger. And then John gives us sort of this interesting comment. He says, this figure of speech, like this story, these metaphors Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them, even though they understood all the stuff that I just explained to you. They're still not getting it. So Jesus, trying to clear it up for them, then goes straight to this image of the door. It says, so again, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm the one who calls you out by name and invites you to follow me, to allow me to lead you through each one of the days of your life by the light of my greater wisdom, by the sight of my greater vision. It's fascinating when you come to understand sheep are notoriously poor-sighted. In fact, they're notoriously nearsighted. Now, just think about that in terms of you and I. How far into the future exactly can you see? I'm going to go with the second you're living right now. That's it. We can predict things. We can plan for things. We can anticipate things. And sometimes we're right, and sometimes we are stunningly, shockingly, unbelievably off base completely. We are nearsighted creatures who follow a shepherd whose vision doesn't end. He's not similarly limited, but you know what that means? That means that sometimes he's going to take us along paths that we're kind of looking at, you know, in the moment and going, not making a lot of sense to me. I have no idea, good shepherd, why you've let us down this one. He'll do that. But his design for you is always good. You know, I mean, it's difficult, I think, to look at a passage like this and to deal with the good shepherd and the sheep and we're the sheep and he's the shepherd and all that stuff in the door and we're coming back to that, but, and not think about things like Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Really and truly, even though right here it looks like I'm wanting, I lack nothing in him. And what does He make me to do? He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. So where's the rocky road going? Where ultimately is He taking me? Right? He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. Do you know what the word paths means? It carries with it the idea of a well-worn rut a path that has been traveled so many times before us that it's literally worn into the ground. It's a trustworthy path. It's a path whose destination has proved worth traveling time and again and time and again. 
It's a path of righteousness. And he leads us down it for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you know that. I fear no evil. Why? Because it's not scary? Oh, please. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff. What is that? It's the implements of the shepherd. They comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. In the end, God conquers all, all of his enemies, all of our enemies, and he and we are vindicated. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. What is that? It's the emblem of the Spirit, but it's also a healing balm. The shepherds will take their flock out by day, and they come back by night, and they stand at the door, and they inspect each one of them for what? Waywardness? No. For burrs, for cuts, for bruises, upon which they pour oil speaks of a healing as you enter into the fold. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell where? In the house of the Lord, in His sheepfold forever. Jesus is saying, look, I'm the one who calls you out by name, who offers to lead you. You go on my mission. That's the way that it works. Through every day of your life, by the light of my greater wisdom, by the sight of my greater vision. And who then at the end of your days welcomes you into my sheepfold, heals you completely, and lays down my life as that which divides you from destruction and death and that which ensures for you deliverance and life. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them, not the true sheep. So he says it again, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, my sheep, might have life. There it is. And have it abundantly, to which he then adds, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, in particular, for each one of you, if you have faith in Christ. So what's the challenge from this? Well, I think the challenge is for us to, first of all, wake up to the reality that, you know what? It actually matters what side of the door you're on. It matters personally, and it matters for everybody around us who has no idea generally speaking, that it matters. And it is for us to come personally, if you've not done that, and it is for us also to lead others to the one who is not only the good shepherd, but the door himself who laid down his life and experienced the death and destruction that we deserve for our sins, that he might ensure for us eternal life and eternal deliverance. It's to come to the Good Shepherd every single day and to say, you know, if I'm going to be honest, I'd kind of like to go this way, and really I'd sort of like you to bring you along on my mission, call you if I need you kind of a thing, you know? I mean, you could be handy. 
and instead to follow Him. That's where the abundant life that we're looking for lies. And to follow Him through each day. And at the end of our days, to experience His eternal life. And it is for us also to wake up, I think, and to begin to live like Noah. Crazy man. And I'm not picturing you with a big sign, you know, or doing anything weird, but but to be possessed by the idea that the world that we're investing ourselves in so fervently is a world that's perishing, and the world we need to really be considering is the world that is had for those found behind the door, those who come to know and obediently follow the voice of the Good Shepherd. I think that's what you get, you know, when you come to a story like this. You realize, you know, hey, wait a minute. I think that this actually calls me to do something. All right, I'm going to pray in a second, and then I'm going to invite Matt to come on up. If you've been with us this Christmas season, you know that we've been talking about doing things for the homeless in this community. And we've given you sort of the overall vision, if you will, of Hope South Florida. It is to build hope. It is to build housing. It is to build community. And last week, we talked about building hope. And today, we're going to talk about building housing. And uh, Matt and B.J. Bankin, who is one of our own, is going to talk to you about that. But I'm going to pray for you. Father, we do thank you, uh, Lord, for the Good Shepherd, who is also the door for the one... Father, who lays down His life to divide us and to protect us from what in truth, when we consider ourselves not in comparison with ourselves, but in comparison with You, we really deserve. We thank You for the One who lived and who suffered, who died, and who conquered death in His resurrection, that we might have deliverance and eternal life, and for the one who each day stands out there and says, all right, follow me. I pray, Lord, that you would call us to do exactly that and show us exactly where it is you would have us to go. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.